Let's ask God to help us this evening. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you're the one who's given your word, the Bible, and you're the one who speaks through it. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word. We pray that as we read it and reflect on it, that we might understand what you are saying to us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to put into practice what we hear, that we may be pleasing to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year 1945 was an amazing year in many ways. But one thing that was amazing about the year 1945 was that in that year, three new young evangelists burst onto the Christian scene. Uh, the one who many considered to be the third most gifted of these three evangelists was a man by the name of Billy Graham. He was hired as a full-time evangelist for Youth for Christ, and his reputation as a preacher roared across America. He spoke to thousands of people about Jesus. But that year, 1945, it also saw the beginning of the ministries of two other men, uh, two men who were widely regarded as being even more gifted than Billy Graham. First, there was Chuck Templeton. He also served with Youth for Christ, uh, with Billy. And uh, one seminary president who heard Templeton preach, he heard him preach to a crowd of thousands, and he called him the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. The National Association of Evangelicals began a magazine at around about that time, and in 1946, they had uh, a, an issue devoted to men who were best used of God. In 1946, uh, no mention was made of Billy Graham, but they featured the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Uh, so Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and then there was Bron Clifford. Uh, in 1945, many people were saying that Bron Clifford was the most powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. One article said this about him. At the age of 25, young Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age in American history. Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Bron Clifford. In 1945, they all came flying out of the blocks, starting ministry with a bang. And yet, I bet you've never even heard of Chuck Templeton. I bet you've never even heard of Bron Clifford. Why? Well, over the next few years, both of them fell away. Uh, Templeton uh, decided he would give up ministry. He became a journalist, quite a renowned journalist. But the reason he did that, he said that he, quote, was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the term. Changed his mind, stopped trusting Jesus. That was Chuck Templeton. Uh, Bron Clifford, his life is uh, even more tragic. By 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, and his life. The uh, struggles of family pressures and of ministry um, led him to become an alcoholic. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children. And at the age of just 35, in a rundown motel in Amarillo, Bron Clifford died of cirrhosis of the liver. Three gifted preachers, three powerful evangelists, three men used by God, three men who started strong. But from what we can tell, 
Only one is finishing strong. Only one. Well, today in our study in 2 Chronicles, we meet two kings. Uh, first, briefly, we meet a man by the name of Abijah. Abijah is uh, the son of Rehoboam, and he takes over from his father Rehoboam when uh, Rehoboam dies. Now, you remember Rehoboam from last week? Um, this is Solomon's son. He started off, do you remember, as the, the king of all 12 tribes. But uh, another bloke with a similar name, sorry, it's a bit confusing, but uh, a bloke by the name of Jeroboam comes along. Okay, so Rehoboam, Rehoboam's got the, t- the 12 tribes, but then Jeroboam comes along. And do you remember, uh, 10 of the 12 tribes go off with Jeroboam. You remember the story from last week? Yeah, yeah, okay, good, I'm getting some nods from those who are away. Um, so, uh, so now you've got two kingdoms, all right? So you've got the southern kingdom of Judah, hence we call them Jews, okay? And Rehoboam is the king there. And then you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, and uh, Jeroboam is king there. Okay, so Rehoboam dies in, uh, in the south. Uh, Abijah, his son, takes over. And Jeroboam sees his chance to take the whole kingdom again, to reunite the kingdom. So he attacks Rehoboam's son, Abijah, and he brings with him an army twice as strong as Abijah's. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 1. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, Abijah became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Marka, a daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went into a battle with a fo- went into battle with a force of four hundred thousand able fighting men, and Jeroboam drew up a battle line against him with eight hundred thousand able troops. Doesn't look too good, does it? In fact, it looks hopeless. Abijah is a rookie king. He's up against the seasoned veteran, Jeroboam, and he's outnumbered two to one. But Abijah knows one thing. Abijah knows that on his side, in his army, is God. And uh, in a lengthy speech on the battlefield, he says so. He says, firstly, God promised my family. God promised the family of David that we would have the kingship. Verse 5. Verse 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Someone asked me what a covenant of salt is in question time. Nobody knows. Seems, sounds like a serious covenant, though. Okay? Serious covenant. So David's family have the kingship. And Abijah says, look, we're still worshipping God the way he says. We're, we're following his law. We've got the right priests. We've got the right temple. We're doing it the way God says. You Israelites, you've forsaken God. You've made up your own priests. You've got your own gods. He says, God is with us. You can't win. Pick it up in verse 10. Verse 10. As for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron, and the Levites assist them. Every morning and evening they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. God is with us. He is our leader. His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you. Men of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. 
Well, while Abijah is giving his theological dissertation, uh, Jeroboam sets an ambush behind him. He gets his troops to sneak up behind Abijah, but it all falls apart. With God on his side, Abijah wins. Verse 13. 13. Now, Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear, so that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind them. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both front and rear. Then they cried out to the Lord. The priests blew their trumpets and the men of Judah raised the battle cry. At the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The Israelites fled before Judah and God delivered them into their hands. And then never one for subtlety, the author of Chronicles tells us exactly the lesson he wants us to get from here. Why did Judah win? Verse 18. The men of Israel were subdued on that occasion and the men of Judah were victorious because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. They relied on the Lord. Well, a couple of years later, Abijah dies and we meet our second king, our second king who we'll spend a bit more time focusing on. Abijah's son, Asar, takes over from him. Now, Asar starts off, Starts off really well, starts off with a bang, he goes shooting out of the blocks. This guy looks like a star in the making. He, uh, he gets straight to work serving God. He gets rid of idolatry in the land. He, he commands the Jews to worship God. He also builds up fortresses in Judah. And for 10 years, he brings peace to the land of Judah. Chapter 14 and verse 1. 14, 1. Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Asar, his son, succeeded him as king. And in his days, the country was at peace for ten years. Asar did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Ten years of peace, ten years of security, ten years of faithful service to, the, to God. But then it, it's shattered. Zerah the Cushite attacks Judah with what verse 9 calls a vast army. You can see that in verse 9. If you check the footnote there, you can see that it reads literally an army of a thousand thousands. Uh, maybe that means thousands upon thousands, or maybe that means a thousand thousand soldiers, a million soldiers. Either way, this is a serious army. Uh, Asar is hopelessly outnumbered. But he's learned his dad's lesson. He realizes that he is weak, he is powerless. But he knows God is strong. So he calls on God. He, he relies on God. He asks God to help him. And he wins. Pick it up in verse 11. Verse 11. Then Asar called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we've come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asar and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asar and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. 
a great victory. And, the, and then God speaks to Asaph through a prophet. And he says, good on you. Good thinking. If you keep on trusting God, you will do well. So keep trusting in God. Stick with it. Keep going. You started well. Now keep running. Chapter 15 and verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Odid. He went out to meet Asar and said to him, Listen to me, Asar and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And jump down to verse 7. Verse 7. As for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. There's God's message. Don't give up. You've started well, now keep on going. Keep trusting me. And Asar hears this and he goes, fantastic. And he works even harder to serve God. He has another go at removing idols from the country. Verse 8. When Asar heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. Removes the idols. He also has a, a big ceremony where he makes all the Israelites promise faithfully to serve God. All the Judeans promise to serve God. Verse 12. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. And then in the just pinnacle of godliness, Asar even deposes his idolatrous granny in verse 16. Not even his granny can get away with idolatry. This bloke is full on for God. And again, it pays off. For more than 20 years, the land enjoys peace. Pick it up with me halfway through verse 17. Verse 17, Asar's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Asa's reign. What a great king. What a winner. 35 years of excellence. 35 years of brave service to God. 35 years of faithful service to God. 35 years of peace for Judah. 35 years of security for the land. Here's a bloke who's made it. Here's a, here's a success story. What a great man. If we could only stop there. But it doesn't stop there. In year 36... Israel attacks Judah. But this time, Asar doesn't seek God's help. Instead, he, he makes an alliance with the pagan king of Aram. Proves to be successful, we read it before. Uh, Israel pull away, but God's not, God's not impressed. And he sends a prophet to say so. Chapter 16 and verse 7. 16, 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. 
Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing. And from now on, you'll be at war. God, God rebukes us. He says, come on, get your act together. You've done well, but you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. But Asa doesn't repent. He's not soft-hearted before God's word. No way. He just gets angry about it. In fact, he puts the prophet in jail and he starts to oppress the people of Judah. And then the last six years of his reign, they're just a disaster. Have a look with me. Verse 10. Verse 10. Hassar was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asar brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asar's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. In the 39th year of his reign, Asar was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asar died and rested with his fathers. It's pretty lame, isn't it? That is pretty lame. 35 years of excellence and then six years that are just pathetic. What do you reckon went wrong? What happened? What happened in that battle? Why didn't he trust God? He's already seen how God can deliver him from an army of a million men. Why doesn't he trust God? Why doesn't he listen when God speaks to him? God says, you've done the wrong thing, you should say sorry. Why doesn't he listen when God speaks to him? When he gets sick, why doesn't he pray? After all those years of trusting God, after all those years of serving God, after 35 years of success, why were those last years so lame? They weren't bad times. I mean, that battle against Zerah, that was in Asa's 10th uh, year. The battle with Baasha was in his 35th year. So you got something like 25 years of peace, 25 years of prosperity, 25 years of success. These aren't hard times. And yet somehow in that time, something happens. Something happens that changes Asa's, changes his reflex against Zerah, Asa's reflex was, trust God. You're in trouble, trust God. You're in trouble, pray. God's the one who helps the powerless. Turn to God. But against Bashar, and, and, and from then on, his reflex is to rely on people. D doesn't trust God anymore. Doesn't turn to God. Doesn't pray anymore. What happened? The text doesn't say, does it? But what do you reckon? Well, I've got a few theories. Uh, maybe Assad just got soft. I mean, with all that success, with all the busyness that it brought, maybe, maybe he let his relationship with God go into cruise control. I mean, you can imagine the scene. The guy's running a busy kingdom. There's always someone at him about something or other, and he's always signing something, and he's always, you know, he's always something else to do. Maybe just... Trust in God moved further and further, to the back, further and further to the back of his mind. Maybe, 
Maybe he just wasn't time to pray anymore, stopped praying, stopped reading God's word. And, and just in the busyness, and in the, he just got soft. That, that, that passion that he had for God just gradually drifted away. Or maybe, uh, maybe I got self-confident. 25 years of success. Must have felt like he knew the ropes. Must have felt like he knew how to king properly. Uh, back in that battle against uh, Zerah, Asher had said to God, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. So back in year 10, he knows he's powerless. He, he knows he needs God. But maybe with all this success, you know, year after year after year, running the country and, and money and wealth, maybe he forgets his powerlessness. Maybe he, uh, he starts to think he can manage on his own or, or manage with a bit of help from his friends. Maybe he gets self-confident. Or maybe, uh, maybe I got a bit proud. Started to think he deserved his success. Started to think like, God got a pretty good deal when he made me king. Serve him pretty hard. And as he started to think he deserved his success, when stuff went wrong, maybe he got bitter about it. So that battle that comes in his 36th year, he goes, well, come on, God. After all I've done serving you for the last 25 years, why, why do I have to face battle now? Or, or when, when the prophet comes and rebukes him, maybe he gets all bitter about that. 25 years I've served you, 25 years I've done the right thing, not a word. I do one wrong thing and then you start talking to me, God. Come on. Maybe when he got sick, maybe he got angry about that. All those years I've served God, all those years I've tried to do the right thing. And now what? Diseased feet. I deserve better. What's God's problem? Something happened. In those 25 years of success, what was it? Did he grow, go into cruise control? Did he get self-confident? Did he get proud? Whatever the exact problem was, his reflex changed. He stopped relying on God. And that's Asar's legacy. Starts with a bang, runs well, but falls over at the line. Finishes with a whimper. I guess the message for Israel in 400 BC, and the message for us as well, is pretty clear, isn't it? Starting well is good, but finishing well, finishing well is essential. God said to Asa, chapter 16, verse 7, As for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. That's what he says to us. Don't give up. Don't just start strong, finish strong. Um, I know many of the blokes here have read the book Point Man by Steve Farrar. Um, somebody's got my copy of it at the moment, I think. Um, but uh, the same guy's written a book called Finishing Strong, which uh, fits the point quite nicely uh, tonight. And uh, he, uh, he helpfully describes what it means for a Christian to finish strong. It's, it's written to blokes. I want to quote from it. As I say, it's written to blokes, but I'm sure you ladies will be able to translate for yourselves. So what, what does it mean to finish strong? Let me quote from Steve Farrar as a Christian. What does it mean to finish strong? It means that you will come to the end of your life 
with a strong and close relationship to Jesus Christ. It means that unless God has taken your wife ahead of you, you will be married to the same woman that you are today. It means that you are a man who is in the scriptures and living the scriptures. It means that you are a man who has fought some battles for the kingdom and has the scars to prove it. To finish strong means that you are leaving your children and grandchildren the priceless heritage of a godly life. Is that going to be you? Are you going to finish strong with a close relationship to Jesus Christ? Living a godly life, soft-hearted to God's word, in the scriptures and living the scriptures, to quote Farah. Will you leave a godly legacy? It's not going to be easy. There could be a long road ahead of you. And there will be all kinds of temptations. There's an American minister by the name of John Bizzagno, and he tells of some advice he was given at the start of his ministry, 25 years of age. A man said this to him. He said, John, stay true to Jesus. Make sure you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. It's a long way from here to where you're going to go, and Satan's in no hurry to get you. That gives me a shiver. Satan's in no hurry to get you. Don't have to be today. Don't have to be this year. It could be after 35 years of faithful Christian service. It could be after a successful, fruitful ministry. Satan is in no hurry. He's happy to bide his time. How can we do it? How can we finish strong? Well, the key, of course, is Jesus, isn't it? It's only Jesus who can bring us through. We've got to keep trusting him, keep relying on him. He's the only one who can help us. But we've got to be so careful. Some of those things that we talked about with us are we need to watch out for them because it's not just the tough times that'll be a temptation. The easy times are a temptation as well. We cannot afford to go into spiritual cruise control. I keep meeting up with blokes who tell me what excellent Christians they were 10 years ago. How they were reading their Bibles and praying every day 10 years ago. How they were leading Bible studies in kids' church and youth group 10 years ago. But now with the busyness of family or career or house or whatever it is, it's all kind of drifted away. The kind of Christian you were 10 years ago is irrelevant. We cannot leave God on the back burner. What matters is the kind of Christian you are now. We need to keep cultivating our relationship with God. We need to keep working on it. We cannot rest on our laurels. No room for spiritual cruise control. We also got to be so careful of self-confidence. As you get older, um, you get good at stuff. 
after a few years working in your job, you get used to it. You get good at it. You start to settle into comfortable routines. You start to feel like you're getting stuff under control. Friends, it can be a trap. The fact is, we haven't got anything under control. Every moment we live, every breath we take is a gracious gift of God to us. The Bible says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. We can't rely on ourselves. We've got to rely on Jesus. Self-confidence, there's no room for it. There's the cruise control danger, the self-confidence danger. There's also the danger of pride. And this can be much more subtle than you think. As we, as we spend years serving God, as we spend even decades serving God, as we, as we try hard to be godly Christians, it starts to be easy to feel like God owes us something. <coughs> like we're the good Christians. Like, like we're, God's pretty lucky to get us. And so... We start to think we deserve health. We deserve wealth. We deserve comfort. We deserve that our dreams should be fulfilled. And with that pride comes, comes a bitterness if it doesn't happen, when it doesn't happen, when we get sick, when we lose loved ones, when our dreams don't come true, when we gradually fade away and die. Friends, God doesn't owe us anything. We are never anything but sinners before God. We deserve nothing from God but to be thrown into hell. We remain utterly indebted to God, utterly in need of his grace, utterly in need of his mercy. No matter how long we've served him and no matter what lovely, nice Christians we are, there is no room for pride. And there is no room for bitterness when it goes wrong. No matter what, we need to thankfully, desperately cling to Jesus in the good times and in the bad times. Friends, it's vital that we make it to the end. And there is plenty that can make us lose our way. Both good times and bad times bring their temptations. So think hard about it. Is there something in your life that could stop you from finishing strong? Is there something in your life that could stop you from finishing strong? Is it spiritual cruise control or pride or self-confidence? What is your reflex? Is, Is it to turn to God in prayer? Is it to trust God? How do you respond when, when you're confronted with God's word, when you get rebuked by God's word? Do, do you reject it like Asa did or, or is your heart still humble, soft-hearted? Friends, whatever it is, whatever could stop you from finishing strong, you've got to get rid of it. Talk to God about it. Talk to a trusted Christian friend. Do whatever it takes. Starting well is good. Finishing well is critical. We do not want to end up like Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford. We don't want to end up like Asar. Friends, God said it to Asar and he says it to us. As for you, be strong and do not give up. For your work will be rewarded. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so 
week. Uh, we don't know how we could possibly hold on to you all our lives. There are so many temptations. So, Father, we cast ourselves on you, the only one who can help the powerless against the mighty. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by the power of your Spirit you would work in us, you would draw us to yourself. We pray that by your grace and mercy, through Jesus Christ, our whole spirit, soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we know you are faithful and you will do it. And so we pray to you in Jesus' name.